Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't want to pull down next time I'll break You're back in the Ascension. Uh, Ascension. Uh, <laughs> Hello, you right? Yeah. You good? I've come to see my dad at his house in Guave in the west of Grenada before I leave the island. It's his birthday party. He's, I won't embarrass him as to how old he is exactly. Uh, And it's the first one I've spent with him in five years. It's going to be a pretty amazing family day. But before we head off to Guave, known as the town that never sleeps and its infamous rum shacks, I've persuaded him to talk to me about his experience as part of the Windrush generation. So cool because of the first boat, the Windrush, that West Indians travelled on to the UK in search of work after World War II. Come, I'll give you an example on Windrush. You see the picture there? This one in the middle. Take it for you have a look, take it for me. This one, yeah, look at that. I'll show you my eldest brother. He went to England in 1954. It wasn't Windrush, but it was a different boat going to England. Now this shows you. Now I've grown up with the stories of his decision and those of his siblings and other members of his family to sail to England in the 1950s. But I want to share them with you too, because they explain so much about modern day Grenada and about how the story connects back to modern day Britain. So what I'm saying, this shows you, this is actual, factual. Why were they going? Why did you all go? Why well, was that? Well, you have to be in mind, Clive, at that time, England was seen as the, the murder country. After the war, England wanted people because um, England lost so much soldiers. The scavengers, the bus drivers, the women mostly went as nurses. The men just went for work because the Caribbean at that time, true emancipation in 1834, it was still the same. Our pa- parents and uh, um, great-grandparents didn't have work. What I was hearing earlier on this week from Ali Gill and others is that when the British left Grenada, they left literally nothing in the treasury. They left literally nothing for public sector workers to be paid. Mm -hmm. There was very little infrastructure other than that was there for the kind of um, primary goods, so Mm -hmm. cocoa, agricultural goods. And so in that time, uh, Mm -hmm. in that period, Mm -hmm. after the war and Mm -hmm. up to independence and beyond, people were coming to the United Kingdom because there was no prospect here. And and is that still the case though, Dad? Ali is right. It's like leaving a child without a parent because we did not have the capacity and the capability, the economic know-how to... So, in actual fact, for over 100 years, Grenada was just part of the colony. We depended on grants from Britain just to do basic things. 
no infrastructure. The plantation owners who were compensated by Britain, 1834 onwards, they became the same plantation owners, say like in Gov, who are any parish who still own the lands. So the exploitation continued after the exploitation continued. Our parents had to work on estates for next to nothing. So people were being paid poverty wages. More than poverty. Despite being free, speech From marks. Slavery. And then and then in the nineteen late forties and fifties, yeah. Britain opens its doors and people Absolutely. Rush to go for a, a better life. Big, a better life. And, and, Look and, at it there. Yeah, and so but when they get there, the experience, they think they're going to the mother country. Mother country. But what's the experience when they get the there? The experience was shock. Because they had to work hard for a living. They saw money which was, they never saw in their lives. So they had to put up with discrimination and racism because they were being paid something. The monies were used to send back to the Caribbean to help the moms and dads and so and so. And did the shortage of labor that then occur because all the young people are going to England? Yes, we lost a lot of skilled people. Remember, it wasn't just plantation workers. You know. It was school teachers, it was doctors, it was lawyers, they left. Because the money that they were getting in England was unbelievable. And did that have an impact here locally? Oh, of course, of course it had an impact. So, what? so Britain sucked out the talent from here. They so we, so we, yes. we spent 400 years yeah. exploiting, and, and then, then we said, give us your brightest, your best, yes. and bring them to the UK. Yes. A lot of my school teachers in Guavier went to England in the 50s. You're not coming from Brunel. They went there because it was better. There was nothing in Grenada for them because their parents were still on estates. It's just amazing to hear your dad speak about being part of the Windrush generation, Clive. This mass migration from the Caribbean to Britain, and in its way, it's it's a direct legacy of slavery, isn't it? Because at emancipation, the Caribbean islands were left really with nothing. Uh, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain, referred to the West Indies as the slums of empire. And so it's no surprise that after the war, when Britain needed a workforce, someone to rebuild the country, people who had very few opportunities, like your dad in Grenada, uh, came to Britain. And just this whole idea, I feel like it's quite poorly understood in Britain, why it happened. And it was the start of uh, a long story um, in terms of how people from the Caribbean, you know, we now know that they helped build the United Kingdom, um, its industrial capacity through slavery and the exploitation that happened afterwards. And then they've come from their impoverished countries to help rebuild the United Kingdom um, after the Second World War. So it, it's quite a story. And, you know, some of them were treated pretty badly when they got to the United Kingdom, which kind of adds uh, insult to injury in so many ways for so many. And yet look at your dad's story, Clive. There he is, 
born in Grenada, works in Britain, makes a success a bit in Britain, back in Grenada, organising the fishermen in Guave. Quite <laughs> extraordinary. Yes, he, all the things he learned in the trade union movement, he basically brought back to his small town in Grenada to help the community that he's now a part of there. So, you know, this kind of cross-fertilisation of people, of ideas, of know-how, is, is the history of Britain, it's the history of Grenada, it's why we're connected and it's, it's a wonderful thing to see. So we're going to take your dad's story, Clive, and go back to the UK, to London, to talk to people there about the reparations movement and where all this apparent momentum for reparatory justice is going or not. We're trying to find out if the UK is listening to the Caribbean. But before we get there, we need to dive back into history to understand the dots that connect the end of the slave trade, the Windrush generation and modern Britain. Exactly, Clive. How has that period informed the case for reparations today? This is Heirs of Enslavement. When we looked at the history and the legacies of slavery back in episode two, we heard about how the horrors of transatlantic slavery and the way enslaved Africans were brought to the Caribbean against their will by Britain and France and the other colonial powers, and the harms done make the case for present-day European governments to pay reparations to the Caribbean to make up for those abusive years, Clive. But since then, we've heard from Ali and Ross in episode three and David in episode four about how the situation after emancipation and independence has also informed this conversation. There was such a continuing lack of economic development, a lack of opportunity, all the things that your dad talked about, Clive, and, and reasons why he left Grenada from Britain. Exactly, Laura. For me, this shows a really clear link between the end of enslavement in the British Caribbean and the arrival of the Windrush generation in the United Kingdom. But I wanted to ask someone who could explain that link in full. Professor Olivetta Telle, who we spoke to back in episode two, she studies the legacies and memories of slavery at SOAS University. I asked her how Windrush came about. Some of the people who came from the Caribbean, there was a lack of opportunity, but the lack of opportunity was the result of enslavement. The result in emancipation period that did not provide for these people to actually build up and rebuild their lives, but also uh, their, their countries. So it was a story of depriving them from what most Britons were enjoying at the time. There's this idea that, you know, People voluntarily left their island because they loved Britain so much. There was that, but there was also a question of survival and the idea that, that was sold to them, that Britain was the place to be. The motherland was also the promised land in many ways. So deceit lies and, you know, unfulfilled promises. What is the connection between the dehumanisation of African people, people in the Caribbean and Windrush and the treatment of black people in the post-war period? I think the dehumanisation is a long tradition. So it just carried on. They were seen as means of production, as tools once again. They were supposed to come and rebuild the motherland. And there was no questions asked. 
they should do it because it was good for them, supposedly. It makes me think of this idea of when black women are supposedly seen as the natural carers of white children, or it's there, it's in their DNA, they're supposed to do it. No questions asked about their feelings or whatever. So they're already dehumanized, they're already seen as a tool just to means for an Is there a link between the racism that the Windrush generation experienced in Britain and the dehumanizing of Africans, which was used as a justification for slavery. Yes, there is a link, and the link is this long tradition of seeing people as not just tools, but as visible and invisible. Racism is also taught and transmitted from one family to another through language, through practices, through body languages, a language as well. So people already were already being taught that these were populations that did not really matter. So when they came and faced racism, it was surprising to them, but actually the rest of the population already was had been taught for generations that they didn't they didn't really count um, as human beings. So you have written about a post-reparation society and why that would be healing. Can you just elaborate on that? So a post-reparation society is a society that has come um, to term with this idea of erasure of the past. We're still talking about, did, did we really do it? We didn't do it. Uh, it wasn't that bad, and so on and so forth. Post-reparation society, society that has accepted that it was terrible, it was awful, it needs to be repaired, and this is what we're doing to repair it. It's also a society that looks at other things that are really, um, to my mind, um, crucial, which is uh, the climate disaster. Yeah, post-reparation society is a society where I don't have to fear for my children because they're black or, or brown. So I really found what Olivet said so interesting because, you know, I love, I'm British. I love being British. Yet I'm aware that we have racism, structural racism, whether it's in the criminal justice system, whether it's in the way people are treated over mental health, in the economy, jobs, it's clear that it exists. And it feels to me that the conversation about reparatory justice is about tackling the root causes of that. And not just it's not just in the interests of black people, Laura. It's in the interests of the country. I think we as a country are having an identity crisis. I, don't, I think we often ask ourselves or want to ask ourselves, who are we? Especially after Brexit, which seemed to me to be a kind of post-imperial tantrum. The question is, who are we as a country in the 21st century? And I think we have to answer that kind of imperial legacy, that imperial history that we haven't really done. And that's what the history wars are all about. They're about people arguing over whether we should look at our imperial history and all that happened in the detail uh, that people like me want to. And uh, I think that's a big part of this story. And I think it would be a big healing, a big healing uh, process if we did that. Well, when Olivette talks about a post-reparation society, Clive, I mean, does that mean to you one in which Britain acknowledges that racism exists because of slavery, because the Windrush generation came to Britain themselves in a way, the, the victims of enslavement and the lack of opportunity in the West Indies only to be greeted with discrimination in Britain? Do we need to acknowledge that and say that? I think we do. I, I don't think you can deal with a, with an issue like that unless you understand its 
genesis, its root cause. And I think we've heard already before in the in the podcast about the forgetting and how in the Caribbean people have forgotten their history and why they're there and how it came about. Well, that forgetting wasn't just in the Caribbean. That forgetting has happened here as well. We tell ourselves stories about who we are as a country, that we developed the world, um, that we civilized the world, that we gave the rule of law to the world. Well, there's also a darker side to it, which I don't think we've been so willing to look at. And I think we need to, not to feel bad about it, but to be able to kind of mend some of the darker parts of that history, which still manifest themselves today, like the Windrush scandal and the, the forced deportations, sometimes the way we view immigration. I think all these things need to be unpacked and until we do that, I don't think we can go forward on those issues. I guess one of the questions too is, you know, this idea about the Caribbean wanting reparations for slavery. How does that sit with black Britons who face discrimination as a result of slavery, though it's not such a direct link as, as if you're living in, in the Caribbean? So to try to understand if this idea about reparatory justice, the concept that Britain's government and others involved in the slave trade should pay reparations to the Caribbean, is that getting any traction in Britain, Clive? I think it is. I think the work that the, the, the campaign for reparations and its various guys are doing, I think the work that you and others, your family and the Gladstones and the Rentons and others in the um, in the movement who are, have started to speak up, I think it is beginning to gain traction. We know the king's interested now in this. There are parliamentarians like myself and others speaking about it. I think it's time to hear about how this campaign for apparently justice has been playing out in the halls of power here in the United Kingdom. It's obviously something that I've started to talk about in Parliament, but I want to talk to someone who's been heading this campaign up as well. And that's my colleague, fellow Labour MP, Bel Ribeiro Addy. It's time to head to Westminster. When peoples of African descent finally get to a place where they're about to it, through their own struggle, achieve a certain thing, sometimes those institutions that have effectively oppressed them come in to try and broker the deal in the way that's best for themselves. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, 
Well, we won't make you be out here for that long. <laughs> I'm going to be sat down for a long time, so I'm okay to stand yet. This is my colleague, Bea Ribeira Addy. She's the Labour MP for Streatham in South London. Bell is also the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on African reparations and since her maiden speech in Parliament, she's been talking about the need to address the injustices of the British Empire. And it's not been easy. It's been a tough road for Bell and myself and others to kind of bring all the disparate parts of this campaign together. And, I, and I'm not sure we have. I think it's a, a work in progress, Laura. Right. Well, one of the questions, of course, is... So the Caribbean is asking for reparations from Britain's government. But what about descendants of the enslaved in Britain who are of Caribbean descent? How do they feel about that? Does it feel fair? Does it feel right? It's all, it's complicated, isn't it? It's really complicated. But, you know, Bell, myself, others, we're trying to pick our way through and to work out how we approach this in the right way for maximum success. Well, there's so much to talk about with Belle, but we started by asking her about the goal of her all-party parliamentary group on African reparations. So the all-party group, um, African spelt with a K, is meant to symbolise all peoples of African descent all for the purpose of pushing forward policy uh, on this particular issue. We know that for a long time it's something that's been on the fringes of society, on the fringes of discussion, so it was an opportunity to bring that discussion right into the Houses of Parliament, the place where legislation is made. Belle, you've talked there about it being on the fringes, reparations being on the fringes. How do you think that's changed in the last year or two? Well, definitely in the last year or two, we've had, I suppose, more mainstream discussions about it. We've seen it a lot more in the media. This has definitely been spurred on by a number of different groups. Uh, for example, different CARICOM nations. There was this particular time where we saw a tour, a royal tour, going around the Caribbean, and it sparked a discussion as to whether or not the royal family of the UK should remain the head of state of some of these countries. And, you know, we saw Barbados actually removing the UK as a head of state and other countries talking about doing the same and then a wider call for uh, reparations. We saw the heirs of slavery talking about their, their own family's role in um, the transatlantic slave trade. And so all of that has brought, I think, things much more into the mainstream media. All of those campaigners that have been talking about it for decades and decades have now been given a voice, and I think that's really important. I've had conversations with numerous colleagues, and something I've had different conversations with different people, let's put it that way. And one of the things that comes back is you need to make the political space for us to move into. Um, What's your experience of speaking to colleagues on this issue about reparations? Are they kind of ahead of the curve? Are they kind of, are they aware of the issues? Are they aware of the history, um, in your opinion? I know what I think, but I want to know what your experience has been. I don't think they are as aware as they could be. I think it's one of those issues which some people in politics would probably see as a bit pie in the sky. There's no way this is going to happen. Yes, we should be very sorry about the transatlantic slave trade. And yes, colonialism was very bad. Um, and yes, you hear some people talking about potentially giving more aid, but it has to be beyond aid. Um, it has to be beyond that, that really, really colonialist mindset of just handing over crumbs and hoping to be seen as a do-gooder in, in, in the world. But also, what would you say are the consequences today in Britain for descendants of the enslaved? And is there a case for reparations for black Britons? 
I think there absolutely is a case for reparations for black Britons um, because the institutional racism that we face today has its direct root in um, enslavement and, and, and colonialism. And I think if we look at reparative justice in terms of repairing the lack of equality, we, will, we can definitely look towards reparations for people in the UK. But it may look very differently to what we're calling for for people in Caribbean and the US and Africa for the simple fact that we are not experiencing the same things that they are. And so I think for us, it in the UK, it'd be more of a commitment towards equality. Now, people can say, oh, well, you've got equalities laws and, you know, we have schemes for young black kids and things like that. But all of these things are, are never as firmly entrenched as they should be. And I believe that if they were looked at as reparative justice, if they were looked at as something that they were compelled to do rather than something that's thrown here and there every once in a while when a politician wants to look great or an institution wants to look great, that we can have a real commitment to equality. A lot of British institutions are falling over themselves. I think Lloyds of London will be the next to come up with its reparative justice strategy. Do you see that as being meaningful from the Church of England, even from families like my own, or do you see it as just being window dressing? I worry, I, and I really, really do worry. I think people mean well, but the issue that we're going to have here is the same that we had when slavery was abolished and the same that we had when various countries gained their independence. It's that when peoples of African descent finally get to a place where they're about to, it, through their own struggle, achieve a certain thing, sometimes those institutions that have effectively oppressed them come in to try and broker the deal in the way that's best for themselves. And that's why I believe the reparative justice campaigns need to be led by, by those that are the most effective. Do you think there's a danger then with our family, the Gladstones who went to Guyana and also apologised and will pay reparations? And we're really following the lead of CARICOM's 10-point plan, but do you think there's a danger that that could be seen as taking over the leadership of those who should be leading the cause? I think, as I said, it's, it's made a massive difference to have such allies on board to push the conversation forward. But if people become nervous about it, then that allyship breaks down. And when it breaks down, then it's no longer working in partnership. It can be seen as one over the other. And that's what we're trying to get away from. I think we need much more open dialogue. Um, I think there has to be more of a discussion about exactly what's, what's going to be done and, and, and more of a listening exercise, because I don't believe that's what, what is being intended by the heirs of slavery at all, uh, because in effect, you didn't have to come forward. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody would have said, yes, it's absolutely the right thing to do, but you didn't have to because there are a number of institutions that haven't. And now you have, I suppose, that the struggle needs to move forward hand in hand instead of one in front of the other. Yeah. I, I want to push you on the issue of this being led by those who are the kind of direct victims of of enslavement and what come after it. There isn't some, I've been in some of the meetings, um, there isn't, we don't even seem to have an agreement amongst ourselves on what it should look like. Um, I guess my fear here is that that could ultimately be used to either impose something or to give nothing. Because whilst you can't make your mind up, and I guess that's the strength of the CARICOM 10 point plan that so attracted me to it. There's something there in black and white. So I guess my question is, those who are leading this, can they agree amongst themselves what reparations looks like? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds almost defeatist just by straight saying no. I know that they will never agree to that. I mean, we can't even agree in our own political party, Clive, on a range of different issues. But that doesn't mean we don't move forward towards the same core aims. And I think what we need to do is 
do away with what we don't agree with for now and focus on what we do agree with. And when we focus on what we do agree with, I believe that we will get to a, a stronger bargaining point, for example. One of the things that people do accept is that reparations must be paid and reparative justice must be done and we move forward from there. I mean, I think about all of the different things that I was talking about in terms of educational reparations, environmental reparations, and the fact that it needs to be led by those that are effective. These are already a few things that you know that no one is going to disagree with in this campaign. And if we focus on those initially, not that the other disagreements will fall away because that's just not going to happen, but I believe that we'll be stronger moving forward. We both have constituency in bags and we both know this winter they're going to be constituents who are going to struggle to feed themselves, heat their homes. Some of them will die from cold. Um, and we're asking for them as taxpayers to fund potentially some of these reparations. I've, I'm struggling how to square that circle. How, how do you square that circle? Well, I think about the fact that no one squared the circle that saw me and yourself, Clive, who are both the descendants of enslaved people, paying towards slave owners. Like to, my family. Yeah, absolutely. To end, to presumably end the slave trade. Until 2015, Until by the 2015. Way. And I'm, 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 I'm just a little bit younger than Clive, not much. But myself and Clive have been paying taxes for a number of years, um, presu presumably for, the, for this particular purpose. And, and actually... For those that aren't spurred on by the moral argument, I'd like to put to them the economic argument. And the economic argument is, is very, very clear that we are not the only country to have nationalists that would be very, very angry about potentially money going elsewhere. Um, we are not the only country that I think is, is looking towards a very bleak financial future. You have uh, countries in Africa, countries in the Caribbean, countries in the Indian subcontinent all rising economically, rising economically in spite of what the UK and other European countries have done to them. We as the UK have left our largest trading partner and we need to go around looking for friends. It doesn't help to be going around with an imperialist attitude and saying rule Britannia rules the waves. We need to understand that in order to maintain said friends moving forward, we're going to have to do something that is a good show of faith. People don't like Britain, which is very sad because I am proud to be British. I'm not proud of what we've done. But I don't want to see a future where other countries are punishing us for what we've done in the past. And I guarantee that if we are the ones leading the way, we won't be the ones left behind because we're in a huge risk of that happening. And I, I, for one, fear for our economic future if we do continue down this road. We need to make friends. We are a tiny island and we are not going to survive by ourselves. I love that. I'm punching above your weight, but in a very different way from what yeah. it's often meant politically inside the chamber. Well, we punched above our weight when we enslaved people. Now we have to punch above our weight in diplomacy. So interesting, Clive, that there's Belle, your parliamentary colleague, saying we'll get left behind if we don't do this. But she freely admitted there's no agreement in Britain about exactly what the strategy is for getting reparations. No, there isn't. And and that can be a weakness, but it can also be a strength because let a thousand flowers bloom. There'll be different approaches and different ways to, to kind of try to get over the line with this. And I think that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing in a democracy and people should be, you know, mature enough to be able to work together on those areas where they do agree to take the issue forward. Now, there will be some areas where we don't agree. And, and that's not a problem because there isn't a one-size-fits-all here for everyone. So I, I'm fine with that. What I really took away from what Bell said, though, was this issue about the UK being left behind. I mean, if you look at the world, you know, literally the moment Britain 
left the European Union, it looks like the kind of the global economy began to fragment. China over here, India over there, Russia over there, the US over here, Europe over there, and we're outside of it. And I think it's really clear, you know, in a multilateral economy, in a multilateral global world, we need friends. And, you know, after the horrors of the empire, and you must remember the Caribbean and other parts of the world have a very different recollection of, of, of our imperial past and what we do in this country, by and large, we need to kind of show people that actually we understand the damage that we did and want to change that. And I think if we don't do that, then I think Bell's right. We could be left very isolated. You know what's funny, Clive, is now that we've left the Caribbean and we've gone to Britain, you know, you're sounding much more like a lawmaker. <laughs> so Maybe because I am meant to be one. I know, right? I, I know, I've taken off the sunglasses and the sun cream and I'm back here in Blighty and I've become a lawmaker again. <laughs> but with all of that in mind, Clive, and only one episode left, it's time to find out what could happen. Will any of these arguments be enough to persuade Britain's government or a future one that it should apologise for the damage done by Britain's involvement in slavery and pay reparations to the Caribbean to try and repair the harms. And if that doesn't happen, what's the alternative? We've gone right back into the history and we find that the idea, although there is no actual specific statutory provision or instrument, there is uh, proclamations and declarations which outlaws slavery for English and Welsh and Scottish and Irish people. That's next time on Heirs of Enslavement. Heirs of Enslavement is a Pasiphonica production. It was presented by me, Laura Trevelyan, and Clive Lewis. Our producer is Rosie Stouffer. Our beautiful steel pan theme is by Andre Greenidge, with additional scored music from Senna Verdi. The sound design is by Aerophon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.